Pastor Josh Carstensen is continuing a series on John, where, in John 9, Jesus heals a blind man during the Sabbath, which ignites four responses from the people around him. Trust, skepticism, apathy, and opposition. Think about which response you'd have while the story unfolds. After the message, you're invited to answer some application questions, which you can find on our website right under the worship service video. Now, here's today's teaching. We're going to be in John 9. We'll take just a minute to get there. Um, last week, our, our staff and us, we had a welcome dinner for our new children's director, uh, Jesse, the woman who's just up here talking to our online family. And good morning, online family. Welcome. Um, and we had a great time, our whole staff and all the kids. And I think there's a little bit more than 35 of us once you include all the little kids running around. And we were out on the back area of our campus and just had an amazing time. We had the bounce house going and it was a, a royal ruckus out there, had a, a meal together and just like a really nice time to welcome Jesse and James on the team. And my wife and I went home uh, afterwards and we're just just talking about how thankful we are for where we are right now, uh, our team, our church, and just, man, it feels so good. There's so much love around here. And then in about 15 minutes, no more than 15 minutes, we just got this barrage of bad news. Uh, and I wasn't on Twitter. I wasn't on Facebook. I wasn't looking for it. I wasn't scouring the web. It just came to us. It came in text messages. It came in phone calls. It came in an email. I kid you not, in less than 15 minutes, we heard about each of these situations. We found out that a friend's dad had died. We found some discouraging uh, news, uh, some political news about a friend of ours. We, we learned that uh, one friend was deeply concerned about their spouse for some issues that were going on in marriage. We, we witnessed an argument between another group of friends. We learned a friend of ours has a, a, a cancer crisis and we learned that a, friend, uh, a friend's relative uh, had a stroke that day. And after the fourth thing, my wife and I look at each other and we go, what in the world is happening? Like literally, I think five of these were text messages. Just like, I'm responding to some while I'm getting others. And after the sixth one, we're like, okay, we got to stop and we got to pray. Like that's all we can do. We just can pray. And life's weird like that. In the highest of highs, I mean, we were literally just celebrating how good everything felt. This felt so good to have this dinner, to have this time together. And then an hour later afterwards, it was just like bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news. And man, that is life sometimes. We all experience really, really good times, but we also experience really, really hard times. And when we go through these hard times, when we talk about struggles, when we talk about you know the difficulties of life, it, it brings up all kinds of philosophical questions. It brings up theological questions. What do we do with things like suffering? Right? One of the things that a lot of people will kind of wrestle with in suffering, especially people who've experienced extreme suffering, will say things like, wow, how can God exist and all this suffering exist? Right? If God is good, if he is powerful, why would he not stop this? Tell me, you haven't, have you heard this argument before? Many of us have heard this, right? If, if God is good and he's powerful, why would he allow all these bad things to happen? You talk about someone who's gone through the loss of a, of a child or something extreme like that, or, or been an abuse victim of sorts, and people will kind of go towards like, man, God can't exist because all these bad things happen. I've had many, many conversations in my life about this. 
Strangely enough, though, the inverse is also true. It's also true that through suffering, people turn to God. So you have kind of one extreme where through suffering, people run from God, and through suffering, people run towards God. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to a friend of mine who, was not a, who is not a Christian by any means, and he was telling me about how um, really as, as he sees America, he sees less and less people, you know, kind of becoming religious and less and less people following uh, Christianity. And he talked about how hard he thought my job would be. You know, he's like, well, your job is to kind of spread the news, but it's just going to be harder and harder. And as our country becomes more educated, less and less people really need God. And then he said something really interesting. He said, Unless there's like some major catastrophe or unless people experience a lot of hardship, people just don't feel like they need God. I thought, man, that's really interesting. It's interesting how when we experience extreme suffering, again, it pushes us away from God, some of us, but then for some of us, it pushes us towards God. There's a really strange correlation between suffering and um, and faith and believing in God. And it's one of the weird things where we talk about it a lot in church too. And you, it's interesting, if you really were to take a kind of a, a couple steps back and look at how Jesus interacts with a lot of people, a lot of the people that Jesus is interacting with are going through some pretty severe trauma. They've gone through a lot of suffering and that's what we're going to see today. We're going to see Jesus interact with someone who has had a lot of trauma in their life, a lot of hardship. And we're going to look at this relationship between suffering and who Jesus is and his nature and his character. And we're going to see that through the story in John chapter 9. As we look at this story, though, I do want to try to fill in some of the gaps between John, the end of John 8 and John 9. And there are some big gaps here. And I, I know like there, there's a lot of things in the life of Jesus, and we can't cover it all. But I want to try to fill in some of the things because as we've been talking about just the, the height of, uh, of just aggression towards Jesus, uh, the intensity of his life is just building and building and building in this last year of Jesus' life that leads up to his ultimate murder and crucifixion. And so um, follow along. I'm going to follow some of the major things that happened from Luke 10 to Luke 13. I would just encourage you later this week, go back, read that, because that's what's happening right after after John 8 and right before John 9. I think it's all the way through 13 verse 31. Those events are happening, but I'm going to fill you in on some of the main things that are happening. So you go back to the very end of John 8, and we were, if you were here last week, uh, the guy up here who's just leading music, Justin, where are you, Jage? Jage, you're somewhere in here. Great job last week, man. It's awesome seeing, um, yeah, absolutely. I love, it's like my little brother is just soaring and I love it. It's so rad. I love that guy. Um, but he, he kind of ended with the whole Jesus saying, uh, I am God, kind of that statement of, of God, of Jesus claiming to be God. He does this multiple times and, and everyone gets angry. The argument's over. It was a long argument until that moment. And, you know, everyone's picking up stones and trying to kill Jesus. And it's just this scene that we see over and over. Jesus saying, I am God, which, which again, I know is something that we talk about regularly, but um, a couple of weeks ago I was talking to a close friend, he says, who's not a Christian, a different guy than the one I was talking about earlier. He says, I just love the things that Jesus has to say. And it's just so interesting to me because I, I think like, do you really love that Jesus is constantly saying that he's God? Because that, if you don't believe that, that just seems really unhelpful. But perpetually Jesus is saying, I am God. Right after this moment where Jesus says, I'm God, we go to Luke 10, and Jesus is sending out the 72. He's sending out 72 of his followers to go spread the news that the kingdom of God is at hand. And he gives them an interesting warning. 
uh, he gives them this warning that, hey, you are going to be rejected in a lot of these cities. As you go out and as you spread this word, a lot of people are going to hate you. You're not going to be welcomed in a lot of places. And uh, so Jesus says, hey, if that's the case, leave the town, shake the dust off your feet. It's going to be really hard for that city in the times to come. And so they leave and they, they cast out a bunch of demons and they come back eventually to Jesus. And everyone's amped up. All the followers are pretty excited. And, and Jesus says, hey, hey, it's good that you've seen this, but man, be more excited that you've seen my power because not everyone gets to see my power. As the story continues, Jesus gives the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, We get the story of Mary and Martha meeting up with Jesus. Uh, Another situation where Jesus casts out another demon and the the religious leaders, these Pharisees, which we seem to talk about so often, they get really upset with Jesus and and they accuse him of being possessed by a demon, which is just absolutely crazy. And when they accuse him of this, Jesus just goes off. And you can read this in Luke 11, 37 to 53. He calls them fools many times. Woe to you, woe to you. You want the position of honor. You think you have it right. You are absolutely ignorant fools. You think that you know God, but you know nothing. Woe to you. And as he's telling them this, the tension just keeps rising and rising. And uh, I want to just read a little bit from Luke 12 to kind of feel what's going on here. So Jesus is, is calling out these religious leaders. And here's the scene. It says this in verse 1, as this tension is rising. In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. He's just saying, beware of all these religious people who think that they know what they're doing, who think they know God. They don't know me. They don't know who God is. And he's, Jesus is saying this to all these uh, people around him. I mean, it's, it's a frenzied scene. It says thousands of people that people were getting trampled. I mean, this is a pretty intense moment. And then you follow some of the stories that happen from here, and you're going to notice a similar theme. Right? We get a, a, a section here where Jesus says, he says, acknowledge me before, ma- before man. Uh, before God. He says, don't fear man. They have no power over you. Fear me who has the ability to send your soul eternally where you don't want to go. He says, there's going to be all kinds of social pressure to reject me. He says, don't give in. That's in chapter 12, verse 9. He gives uh, different warnings about relying on ourself. Uh, He says, don't be anxious. He says, be ready. I'm coming back. But when I come back, I'm bringing division. I'm not bringing peace. I'm going to bring division. In 13.1, he says, repent or perish. He's being very straightforward. Again, it's, it's a lot of animosity. It's a lot of argument. Jesus is being very, very bold. We get another moment right before what we're about to jump into in, uh, in John, where he heals another woman, classic Jesus. He does it on the Sabbath. And listen to these words in Luke 13, verse 13. It's another one of these, are you kidding me, moments. Luke 13, 13, and he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight. Um, So this is a woman who has bent over her whole life. So he heals her and she glorified God. But listen to this. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed her on the Sabbath, said to the people, this just blows my mind. It's absurd. There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed. Not on the Sabbath. 
what in the world? Here's Jesus healing someone at church. You know, he's like, okay, it's Sabbath. Let me heal someone. And the pastor stands up and he says, hey, all of you guys, if you could not come on this day to get healing, because we're supposed to be religious and pious on these days. We don't need any healings going on. Jesus answered him in verse 15. Then the Lord answered him, you hypocrites. He goes on and he goes on. These people think that they know who God is. And Jesus just keeps blowing up our boxes of who we think God is. You know, JJ talked about this last week, um, God blowing up our boxes, and we all have them. We all have these boxes of how we think God can work, how we think God can work in the universe, how we think that God can work in my life, how we think he can't work in my life. And Jesus perpetually just keeps saying, I'm bigger than who you think I am. I'm so much bigger. He's constantly doing this. I think it's seven different times that Jesus heals on a Sabbath just to kind of poke at these religious people. I'm not going to obey your silly rules. I'm so much bigger than you. And then in John 9, another healing. And guess what? Another Sabbath. So what happened in John 9? What does this teach us about suffering? What does this teach us about the heart of Jesus? And what does this teach us about our response to the miraculous, to the real Jesus? We're going to read the entire, the entire passage of John 9. So I'm going to ask that you would stand. I'm going to get some water real quick. We're going to read all of John 9 here. It's a doozy, but it's a good one. When I'm done, I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord. You're going to say, thanks be to God. Here we go. Another Sabbath. Another healing. By the time it's all said and done, some more anger. This, um, this doesn't stop at the end of 9. This actually continues all the way through 10. And we're going to uh, get to chapter 10 next week. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? They answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I wash and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. Verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight. Until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? 
His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, though, uh, that though I was blind, I now see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen to me. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they said to him, and they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God had spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, could he do nothing? They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they cast him out. And having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can take a seat. Good job. I think that's the longest we've ever stood in a Sunday morning. It's again, it's one of those stories I just, I feel like we keep reading in the Gospels and and we can look back with, you know, kind of eyes through the filter of uh, a lot of us believing these things to be true. But I think it's also good to kind of sit through it with the eyes of something happening that would be way beyond your, you know, normal ability to, to rationalize would be possible, right? Think about someone, you know, if someone right here um, was blind for life and had sight because of someone in the building, like that would be pretty phenomenal. We would have all kinds of different reactions to this. But it's amazing how discouraging it is too, seeing these religious people in the way that they perpetually are like, nope, Jesus, you can't be God. You're healing on the Sabbath. You're not obeying our rules. It's really, really confusing. So what do we learn about suffering here? What do we learn about Jesus? What do we learn about his heart? Well, first of all, let's, let's just for a minute try to put ourselves in this, this poor man's shoes, which I think is hard for some of us. I think that some of us might be able to identify with some of the things that he's going through. But imagine being blind from birth. Right? We don't know how old this man is, but he's old enough to, to be an adult, to speak for himself. He's, he's not so old that his parents are gone, but he's been suffering for a very long time. 
Imagine having no social network. Imagine he's not welcomed in the church. Imagine um, he's sitting most days in the dirt begging. He has no way to get food um, other than by sitting and asking others. We know that socially he was an outcast because the text says, uh, even the disciples were saying, well, who sinned that this man became unclean, right? So the question is, well, who's bad? Is he bad or are his parents bad? And so he's got a lot of shame that he's carrying with him. So not only just the physical hardship of being blind in that day, but just the emotional shame of carrying where everyone around you thinks that you are not worthy of anything. Again, I don't know that many of us can identify with that type of hurt and suffering and shame. I, I do know that there are many of us in here who have suffered a lot of different ways. Some of us, we, we go through seasons of feeling unworthy for whatever reason. We don't feel good enough. We don't feel competent. We don't feel attractive enough. We don't feel like we're able to be uh, in relationship with certain people. We feel like outsiders at times. Um, some of us have gone through physical sufferings of different uh, sorts, whether it's cancer, whether it's um, any sort of ailment that we might go through. But man, what would it have been like to be this man in first century? Then you ask yourself the question, why would Jesus allow this? Why would God allow someone to go through this type of suffering? What's, who's to blame here? Why, why would this type of suffering happen? Right? Why do we suffer just in general? And we're going to talk about just the general suffering that we go through and why it happens. And then we're going to look at this man and what Jesus has to say about it. So why do we suffer? Right? There's a lot of different ways that we suffer. And some of them are very natural. And some uh, seem to be fluke. They seem to be random. But there's a couple different ways that we suffer naturally. Uh, one of the easiest uh, responses to suffering, or one of the easiest things that we can look at, and we don't really have too much of a hard time, is uh, when we do something wrong and, and we get the natural consequence, right? So if you, if you do something wrong, you drink and drive, and you get in an accident, and, and you hurt yourself, like you're going to suffer, um, but you did that to yourself. And so no one really has big problems with that type of suffering, because you're a victim of your own, the, the, your own choices, Right? But we have bigger problems with what happens when someone else drinks and drives and they hit you and you're suffering because something that someone else did. Right? Those are the, the types of sufferings that are a little bit harder to swallow. Or, or what about just absolute freak accidents? Right? A neighbors of ours this week, one of their children had just an absolute horrific freak accident. A couple weeks ago, a friend of mine was driving from uh, California to Oregon on Highway 199 uh, from Crescent City to Grants Pass, and about five minutes behind him, a redwood tree fell and crushed a car uh, with, five, with a uh, mom and dad and three kids in the back and killed mom and dad instantly. Right? You look at those moments, and you just wonder, man, where is God in that? Like, what, what's God doing in that? You know, where is God when something bad happens to me because of a choice of somewhere else? Where is God when something just absolutely fluke random happens? Why is it that God would allow this type of suffering? Right? And, and what does Jesus have to say about this man's suffering in particular? And what can we learn about it? Jesus says very clearly in verse 3, he says, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. 
Now we can say a whole lot about this, but as simple as possible, Jesus is saying, hey, this man was born blind. He was suffering for a very long time. But guess what? God's going to do something through his suffering. And through that, God is going to uh, glorify himself. He's going to be made known. Something great is going to happen out of this. Ultimately, um, the, the something great is going to far outweigh um, the temporary hurt and pain of suffering of this man. And now that's easy to say as kind of an outsider. But what, what would it feel like to be this man suffering for so long? For someone who's suffering potentially 30, 40 years, what would that be like? And I think the easy answer on paper is to say, well, if, if he gets eternal life out of this, eternal life with God versus 30 years of suffering, like clearly on paper we would say, yeah, totally worth it. Right? But then you have all kinds of questions coming out of that. Like, well, what about all the people who don't have to suffer? Like, why so long? Is it really necessary, God, for someone to suffer that extreme You know, we can all look to examples of people who suffer heinous sufferings, and we can say, God, does it really take that much suffering to accomplish your good work? Why is that, that you would allow that to happen? So many questions about suffering. I think it's um, a beautiful thing to recognize a world where God does redeem suffering for good, right? Where God is able to take no matter how extreme suffering may be and make good out of it, like Jesus says he's going to do with this man. I think that's a far more palatable world than a world where God doesn't exist. Because what happens in a world where God doesn't exist? Does suffering go away? No, we still suffer. But in a world where God doesn't exist, there's no hope for redemption. It's just you're going to suffer your whole life and then you're going to die. Like that's a, that's, that's a lot harder pill to swallow than a world where God does exist and there is suffering. So honestly, I've never really understood people's argument when they say that um, because of suffering, God can't exist. Because I think it's actually far easier to believe that because of suffering, it, it makes sense that God exists where he can redeem that and give eternal life and restore someone's life. But why is this man suffering? Right? Because Jesus is going to bring a lot of good out of his suffering. Right? Now, is that true for all suffering? As we're going to look at you and I, is it true that God brings good out of all of our suffering? Well, it depends. It depends on a lot of things. It depends on how we respond to God. There's a famous verse in Romans 8, 28. Many of you know it. Some of you, this, you may hear this for the first time, but we read this. And, and we know that for those who love God... Right? That's the first thing. For those who love God, all things work together for good. Right? So when it comes to suffering, if you know God, all things work together for good, which kind of leaves us with the question, well, do we know God? How do we respond to him? Because we're all going to suffer at some level. So can God make all things work together for good? Well, if you know him, absolutely. So what is our response here? We're going to look through the response of all these different people as they interacted with Jesus and this blind man's uh, miraculous um, healing. We have four different ways in this text to respond to Jesus, and our response does determine how God works through suffering, or the two correlate together quite well. We're going to see four different things. We're going to see um, that we can trust in the goodness of God. We can be skeptical of God's goodness. We can be apathetic towards God's goodness, or we can be opposed to his goodness. Now let's look at the first one. We can trust in the goodness and the godness of Jesus, right? And by this, we're going to look at the blind man. So let's look at this circumstance, right? So here's the blind man. Jesus comes up to him and uh, every interaction where Jesus heals people, it's always a little bit different, which I find to be actually really helpful because Jesus meets us all very differently depending upon where we are, depending upon um, kind of what's going on in our life. But Jesus meets this man 
And he doesn't instantly heal him. Remember back at the the pool of Bethesda, he tells this man, stand up, get up your mat and walk. That's not what Jesus does to this man. He goes to him and he does something really strange. He spits on the ground and he makes mud and he takes the mud and he puts it on the man's eyes, which again is really, really strange because he could have just instantly healed him. But he asks him to do an act of faith. He asks him, hey, I'm going to put this mud on your eyes and I need you to go do something. I need you to go walk to this pool of Siloam. And again, the man's blind. This is not an easy task. You know, this is something that would require a decent amount of faith and a decent amount of effort. Sometimes when we meet Jesus or sometimes when we want to obey him, we want to just have the instant answer quickly. We want to have the, hey, can you just heal me? But Jesus says sometimes, hey, I need you to believe and then you can see. But very often we want to see to believe. But with this man, Jesus says, no, I need you to believe and then you will see. And that's what he does. The man goes and he receives his sight. He obeys Jesus in faith. He makes the effort. He goes to the pool. He washes off and then he sees And he has this interaction with Jesus in verse 38. He says, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus responded to him. He says, for judgment, I came into the world that those who do not see may see. Right In our pain, sometimes we can't see. We can't see why God would allow certain things to happen. And so we have all kinds of questions. And Jesus doesn't just give us the answers all the time. He didn't just heal this man instantly. Sometimes he says, I need you to trust me. In your blindness, I need you to trust me. And when you trust me, then I will give you sight. And that's what happens to this blind man. That's what Jesus does. To those who do not see, I will make them see when we trust in the goodness of God. And that's many of us here. I know that. Many of us have responded to Jesus in such a way where we say, hey, you know what? I I can't see everything. I don't understand why you would allow certain things to happen, but I'm going to trust you. And when we do that, eventually we will see everything for what it is and we will have eternity with God. And that's what happens when he makes all things work together for good for those who say, yeah, sure, I trust you. Absolutely. But then some of us, we can be skeptical. Right, Some of our reactions to who Jesus is is one of skepticism. Think about the neighbors here. We see the neighbors in verse 8. The neighbors and those who had been seen and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said it is. And others said, nah, maybe he's got a twin. Maybe he's got a triplet. I don't know. It kind of looks like him, but it can't be him. Some of us look to faith and we look to God and we say, you know, it's just not possible. I just, I, I'm too skeptical. You know, it, it, it seems too good to be true. I, I don't know. And so we kind of just sit on the sidelines like some of these neighbors. They kind of just sit back and they say, well, I don't know. And they kind of make up all these excuses why this can't be true. Some of our reaction to Jesus is like that. We're skeptical. Some of us, even in our faith, are a little bit skeptical of what we think Jesus can and can't do. What would happen to the blind man if he was skeptical? What if when Jesus puts some mud on his eyes and Jesus says, hey, I want you to go do this. I want you to act in this manner of faith. What if he's like, yeah, I don't know. That seems really weird. You know, what if Jesus asks you to do something? What if he asks you to go to Ukraine? What if he asks you to give your life to northern India? Right? I think it can be really easy to be skeptical and say, well, well, what about this in my life? Well, what about that? And I think sometimes we just have to, in faith, say, okay, while I can be skeptical in my natural state, I need to trust you. These neighbors were quite skeptical. What about the apathetic towards Jesus? This is his parents. These people crack me up. I think we have a lot of these people in Christianity. We see this in verse 19 when the Pharisees go to his parents and say, Is this your son who you say was born blind? Well, how then does he see? 
His parents, they answer, we know that this is our son and we know that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he would be put off out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, ask him, he is of age. What's interesting about his parents is at this point, they've already received everything that's great, right? Their son's been healed, like hallelujah, amen, thank you, Jesus. You did the hard part, right? Their shame is now gone. They had family shame forever because everyone's wondering what's wrong with the parents, what's wrong with the son, something's wrong. So all that's wrong. So they, at this point, in their mind, they have all the benefits of what Jesus has to offer, right? Thank you for the healing. Thank you for taking away my shame. Everything's good with me. I like my life. It's pretty comfortable right now. But if I confess Jesus, my life's about to get a lot harder. I've already got his benefits. If I'm about to confess something, I will be kicked out of my social circle. I will not be welcomed in the synagogue anymore. I think a lot of us And I'm going to be careful in saying this, but I think some of us even coming out of COVID, I think it can be really easy just to say, oh, I really, I have all the things in Christianity that I like, but I don't know that I need to go too far and do too much because that seems kind of hard and I'll lose out on some of the things that I like doing. And so, you know what? I love my weekends and I love traveling and I love the sunshine. And man, it's really easy just to kind of grab a sermon here and there when I want or pick up the Bible here and there and not fully engage in the invitation that Jesus has for us. And I think that's kind of being like the parents. You're getting the benefit of Jesus without the potential hardship, without the risk, without doing the work and the effort of when you say, um, I'm going to follow you, it's going to cost you something because being a Christian costs you something. To be a real follower of Jesus is costly. But the mom and dad were like, you know what? I kind of like having my cake and ice cream and I don't want it to cost me too much. So just go ask him. Then lastly, there were those who were opposed. Obviously, this is the Pharisees. This is just this perpetual cycle. It's a ridiculous cycle. We see this in verse 16. This man can't be from God. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. He's healing people on days that I don't agree with. He cannot be from God. I think it's interesting, though, because some of the Pharisees are like, well, wait a second. Like, if he was a sinner, he wouldn't be able to do this. And so they're, they're debating back and forth, right? This is why they go find the man. This is why they go find the parents. And they're saying, okay, what in the world happened? How were you blind? But now that you see, and I love the blind man. He says, hey, here's the deal. I have been healed by this man right? Clearly, this is not normal. And he goes all the way back to the Old Testament. He says, nowhere in the Old Testament is anyone getting healed. Clearly, God is behind this. And what do they say to them, to this blind man? They say to this blind man, you're not the teacher. We're the teachers. Get out. And they kick him out. They had every reasonable piece of evidence in front of them to say, you know what? Maybe, maybe this is worth investigating. Maybe I should follow you. You know, maybe you did something. We live in the same world, right? Every Sunday we come in here and we look at that cross and we say, you know what? Maybe you did something. Maybe you did something that actually blows away anything that anyone's ever done. But what's the most reasonable thing that we can do? How can we reasonably respond? The most reasonable way to respond would be to say, you know what? You were blind, but now you see something incredible happened here. It had to have been God, right? If Jesus Christ was able to raise from the dead, something incredible happened, And the only reasonable explanation is to say, you had to be God. 
the consequence of opposing Jesus, we see this in verse 40. The disciple or the Pharisees asked Jesus, are we blind also? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. They have no excuse. In our pain and our suffering, I think it can be really easy to put God in a box and say, God, because this is happening in my life, because this isn't happening in my life, therefore you cannot be good. Therefore, you cannot exist. And I think when we do that, we are saying, we see. And Jesus says, when you say that you see, you in fact are blind and your guilt remains. So does good come out of hardship? Well, again, it depends on how we respond to Jesus. If Romans 8, 28 is true, then we have an opportunity here to respond. We have one of four choices. We can either trust in the goodness of Jesus. We can be skeptical of Jesus and miss out. We can be apathetic towards Jesus and miss out, or we can be opposed to Jesus and miss out. So where are we this morning? My hope, my invitation, the story again and again and again is Jesus saying, I am bigger than anything that you see. I will give you sight, but right now without me, you are blind. Father God, we thank you that you are bigger than anything that we see. Father, I thank you that you perpetually are doing things through your life to show people that you have a better way to live. Lord, we pray for those of us who, have current, who are currently going through suffering. God, and we, we can suffer in such a way that can all be redeemed for your goodness. Or we can suffer in such a way to say, you know what, God, you can't do something good through my suffering. You cannot redeem this. And we will miss out on who you are and what you do, that your works may be displayed to the world. Jesus, I thank you for your life. I thank you for showing us the most reasonable thing that we can do, and that is to believe in you as God, as you gave your life on that cross. And Jesus, when we give our lives to follow you, you will make all of our life good, bad, and ugly worth it. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's teaching from Northwest Hills Community Church. We hope you find ways to apply the gospel to your life. And be sure to check out our website, nwhills.com, where you'll find ways to engage, including resources like our application questions. Thanks again for listening.